Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection who inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is entitled The Heel Fighter and is intended to reflect upon the violence that occurs outside of combat sports, specifically that which is incited by rival fighting opponents and the institution that has been built up in order to promote fights. I'm still working on the next intended show, so don't worry if you think you've tuned in incorrectly and missed a show out. It's taking a bit longer than I expected to get right. So in the meantime, I hope this somewhat topical episode will be of interest. I hope you enjoy the show. On the 6th of October 2018, the biggest mixed martial arts event of the year, UFC 229, descended into temporary chaos. After submitting Conor McGregor in the fourth round with a neck crank stroke face bar to defend his lightweight championship belt, Habib Nurmagomedov responded to verbal provocations hurled at him by Dylan Danis, McGregor's cornerman and Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, by scaling the octagon's cage and jumping towards Danis. These actions almost prompted a riot at the T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada, as if there wasn't enough going on outside the cage. Inside it, McGregor chased after his rampaging opponent and got to the top of the cage, where he met Abukar Nurmagomedov, Habib's cousin and a welterweight mixed martial artist, who subsequently punched and received a punch in return. After being pulled back into the octagon, McGregor was attacked by three members of Habib's corner, including Abu Bakar. A viewer would be forgiven for thinking they tuned into the latest WWE pay-per-view. In fact, as I quickly discovered, when one tries to explain the entire debacle to someone who isn't into MMA, and the incidents that occurred during the build-up to what followed after the match, it all sounds like high-concept soap opera. Just about everyone in mixed martial arts popular media seems to have commented on the incident, with many of them expressing disdain. They all appear to be angry or sad, echoing the sentiments of UFC President Dana White's despairing speech about how he'd worked for 18 years to lift the brand out of this type of controversy and turn it into a respectable sport. Nearly every commentator feels they must preface whatever they're about to say about the post-fight brawl or even the actual match with an obligatory disclaimer about how they do not condone Habib's actions or the actions that Conor McGregor took prior to the fight. Veteran UFC employee, comedian and podcaster Joe Rogan, who provided an eyewitness account of Habib's provocation by Dylan Dennis, described the world champion's behaviour as horrible and the nastiest thing I've ever seen. He then went on to say that Conor McGregor wasn't participating in any of the chaos. He was jumped by Habib's corner. This was a view voiced by most commentators at the time who did not have the benefit of various other viewing angles that have since surfaced. As if conforming to the rhythms of professional wrestling sympathies, McGregor had turned from being the heel or villain of the picture to the face or sympathetic hero, and Habib had made a dramatic heel turn after exercising so much composure and control during the build-up. McGregor's pre-fight antics had included verbally abusing Habib in as many ways as possible during press conferences to throwing a metal loading dolly at the bus carrying him and other UFC fighters, injuring two passengers in the process. His reasoning for this was based on McGregor's friend and fellow straight blast gym fighter, Artem Lobov, being confronted in a hotel by Habib for trash-talking. Lobov put up a video on social media where he accused Habib of not behaving like a true champion, unlike McGregor. He accused Habib of being a coward for pulling out of fights due to injuries, but McGregor never pulled out. Video evidence shows Habib gripping Lobov by the back of the neck and telling him to call him a pussy to his face. Lobov backs down, claiming he never said that, and gets what appears to be an off-camera slap from Habib. All of this was enough for McGregor and his gang to fly on a private jet to Brooklyn, using their influence to get backstage and attack the bus carrying Habib and several other people not connected to the row in any way. 
This was also filmed and McGregor got five days community service for assault. There are ongoing private lawsuits being taken out by those who were injured. No, I repeat, I'm not describing an unfolding backstory on Monday Night Raw. The ridiculous bus incident was also followed by Dana White describing the entire affair as the most disgusting thing in UFC history. The fight still went ahead though, didn't it? With benefit of time and hindsight, I've seen three popular views emerge on the Habib and McGregor story. One camp supports Habib. He seems a victim of bullying pushed too far, a noble warrior in the spirit of bygone ages when honour mattered. They see McGregor as a persecutor who broke the rules several times during their one-sided bout in desperation against his physically superior opponent. The other camp support McGregor, believing him to be a great entertainer who was just playing the age-old promotion game, his lack of ill-feeling the next day being demonstrated by his message on Twitter that was posted alongside footage of him tapping out. Good knock. Looking forward to the rematch. The behaviour of both fighters during the match provides us with the evidence that they weren't playing the same mental game. Habib, who has done so well to control and compose himself during interviews and press conferences as McGregor insulted his family, religion and country, punished his opponent while shouting, Talk now! Let's talk now! By contrast, McGregor's reply was, It's just business. The third view probably fits more in with the aforementioned commentators who are holding their heads at the damage that the incident has done to the reputation of mixed martial arts. This camp rightly condemned both men's criminal actions. As an adult with a sense of mature responsibility, it's not hard to see this view. Just because someone trash talks you online doesn't mean you should physically intimidate them, no matter what they called you. Likewise, purposely attacking a bus of people in retaliation for this behaviour is not justifiable legally or by most moral standards, especially when you consider that bystanders were injured in the attack. Attempting to engage in an unlawful fight because you're having a row with someone isn't justifiable either, and doing it in a public place that is likely to set up a riot might be considered by many to be irresponsible. Attacking someone you don't like because they came near you as you climbed a cage isn't grounds for legitimate preemptive striking. Hitting back is probably justifiable in this context, but then being part of a multiple assault isn't going to win you a lot of moral support. All of these seem to be fair judgments from where I'm standing. However, none of it really offers much overall closure. I propose not an alternative view, but what I think is the larger picture, where some decisions need to be made if anything is going to be learned from this entire unfortunate episode. Let's have a look at some history. Mike Tyson's reaction on Twitter was that the aftermatch antics of Habib and McGregor were crazier than the riot he caused after biting Evander Holyfield's ears in their title fight in Vegas. He might have also been referring to the riot he started when he beat Razor Ruddock. Tyson, especially during his comeback era in boxing after being imprisoned for rape, ran his promotional campaigns on being the baddest man on the planet. It was a curious change. He initially came out of prison as a converted and devout Muslim who prayed at the end of his matches. He won back two versions of the heavyweight championship and the new post-prison reformed image lasts until he lost to Evander Holyfield. The aforementioned rematch against Holyfield that resulted in the riot ended Tyson's reformed image. Having been suspended from boxing due to the biting incident, he possibly got a reminder of how well the bad boy image would sell when he was employed by the WWF as part of the build-up to WrestleMania 14. Tyson joined Degeneration X, the most popular heel stable of the promotion at the time, and in time-honoured wrestling tradition, did a face turn at the main event. When he returned to boxing, the baddest man on the planet image stuck thanks to the wrestling promotional campaigns, and mainly because of the reason why he had been suspended in the first place. He was criticised for going too far in the lead-up to his first fight against Francois Botha by predicting his knockout and saying that he expected him to die. How far Tyson was willing to go was certainly a cause for concern for many during that fight, 
despite eventually knocking out Botha, he purposely called his opponent three times during the early part of the fight with an illegal arm lock. Botha was even accused Tyson of trying to break his arm. And looking at the footage, it does look like Tyson really was willing to go all the way with that arm lock. Several successful fights later, and Tyson would earn his final shot at the World Championship against Lennox Lewis. The build-up for the event serves as perhaps the most cynical version of It's Just Business. The anticipation for the match had been carefully orchestrated over years, and it was billed as a moment in boxing history. The most memorable part of the entire incident was the press conference brawl that resulted in both boxers being sued by the World Boxing Commission's president for claiming he was knocked unconscious, and Tyson having to pay damages to Lewis for admitting that he bit his leg. The leg bite just seemed to be Tyson using more psychological warfare taken from the reputation he had earned for biting Holyfield. Tyson also grabbed his crutch and directed obscenities towards the crowd, some having claimed they had directed at Lewis's mother. He also targeted a freelance journalist. His language reinforced the image of being a dangerous ex-convict. No rational reason for Tyson's feud with Lewis was given. The night of the bout saw the ring being divided by security guards before the contest began. Tensions were high. After Tyson's loss, the two fighters embraced each other with mutual respect, proving that everything that had gone before was clearly promotional hype that everyone had bought into, and the pantomime was now over. However, none of these events compared to what happened during the Jack Johnson era. One of our earliest modern-day examples of blurring the lines of promotional hype and genuine danger in the fight world is one of its most extreme. Johnson's story is often an ugly tale of racial persecution, it's also a story of manipulating public emotions for financial gain. Prior to the days of established faces and heels, Jack Johnson discovered he could turn the hate directed at him and the way he wished to live his life into a profitable marketing strategy. We often scorn the various fighters who are shameless about their financial incentives. Conor McGregor uses this in much of his publicity. Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Chris Eubank Sr. both knew it would turn people against them, but never missed an opportunity to openly talk money. Yet this is the nature and defining characteristic of a professional sport. The moralising, judging outsider expects fighters to be there first for the love of the sport, and yet these individuals are putting their lives on the line to earn a living. Heavyweight champion Tommy Burns is rightly praised for his willingness to defend his title against other races after his predecessors had drawn the colour line. However, he only gave the future first African-American champion Jack Johnson his shot after he was guaranteed a lucrative payday. Likewise, once Johnson had the title, he saw an opportunity to only enjoy what he had achieved in the way that he chose, but also to ensure that his historic position would get maximum exposure. In the time of the Jim Crow laws and the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, Johnson taunted his various white challenges, and many said he punished them for extended lengths of time by using his excellent clinching skills. All the time, he smiled his signature grin at his racist critic. In truth, Johnson's first title defence, which is the incident where all the controversy really started, was a respectable affair, as far as the fight's concerned anyway. James J. Jeffries, an undefeated world heavyweight champion, had been pushed by the media and fight promoters to come out of his five-year retirement to take on Johnson for the honour of the white race. Jeffries, who had refused to fight Johnson during his time as heavyweight champion, ended up agreeing and publicly stated he was doing this to prove white race superiority. However, when he lost, even John L. Sullivan, another former world heavyweight champion who drew the colour line, praised Johnson on his conduct during the fight and said it was a clean win. That did nothing to stop the destruction that followed. 25 states and 50 cities erupted into race riots after Jeffrey's loss, resulting in the deaths of at least 20 people and the injury of hundreds. Johnson did not pull back throughout his career as champion. He might have been respectful to Jeffries, but from now on he would gloat over his white opposition 
be there in the ring or in the crowds. Outside the ring, he behaved flamboyantly, fanning the flames of racist fears and racial hatred. To the annoyance of many of those who had hoped his win meant progress in civil rights, he also refused to fight any legitimate black challengers for the title, therefore maintaining the colour line he had fought hard to cross himself. To this day, Sam Langford, who had won Johnson's vacated Coloured World Heavyweight Championship, is considered to be the greatest fighter who never got a shot at the real world title. Knowing that he would make more money out of fighting the Great White Hope sent his way, Johnson refused to fight black challengers for the first five years of his reign. After this, he accepted a challenge from journeyman fighter battling Jim Johnson, who had lost to every other legitimate black challenger. Johnson's flamboyance and behaviour, considered outrageous by the white race and moral influences of the time, was used as a powerful promotional tool. He should rightly be given credit for having the courage to face this bigotry and prejudice. There's no comparison between the way racially motivated authorities charged him under the Mann Act during his time as heavyweight champion and McGregor's conviction for attacking Habib's bus. However, it's fair to say that Johnson knew what he was doing when he outraged white America. He was playing the promotional machine that guaranteed he got the most out of doing the job he did best. For decades, the image he cultivated that ensured his fights sold out divided many of those who fought for equal rights for African Americans. As we will see, the likes of Muhammad Ali considered Johnson to be a trailblazing hero who divide convention. As we will also see, there were those in the African American community who felt he did more damage and retarded the progress of civil rights by stoking the fire of racial hatred. Say what you like about professional wrestling, but at least it's honest about its dishonesty. Audiences have long been a part of this immersive form of physical theatre that has mutated into a melodrama, where what happens outside of actual matches is at least as entertaining as the actual wrestling. The origin of working public sympathies might be traced back to gorgeous George Wagner. America in the 1940s and 50s had little time for the prissy, the precious and the pompous. They liked their masculine figures to be rugged and tough. So Wagner attended his pre-match appearances draped in furs and lace, his beautifully coiffed golden locks on show. His ring entrance music was Sir Edward Elgar's pomp and circumstance. He had a personal manservant who sprayed his opponent's corner with Chanel deodorant and told the referee when checking in for foreign objects prior to the match to keep his dirty hands off him. Gorgeous George became the first official heel in professional wrestling. He understood that since the sport had become a physical theatre, it had to change again beyond just a demonstration of rehearsed catch-as-catch-can wrestling. The audience needed emotional investment in the characters. By making the decision to turn public taste against him, he knew that audience would come in droves to see him get beaten. Whereas Johnson chose to flaunt what he knew would enrage audiences, Wagner actively manufactured an icon of outrage. As a result, he became one of the highest paid athletes of his time. In 1961, a certain individual took a special notice of Gorgeous George. The up-and-coming Cassius Marcellus Clay had only turned professional the previous year. George was two years away from death. Nevertheless, the young boxer saw the promotional magic being performed appropriately in Las Vegas, where so much spectacle and controversy had since taken place. Many years later, Clay, now renamed Muhammad Ali, told one interviewer, quote, I saw his aide spraying deodorant in the opponent's corner to contain the smell. I also saw 13,000 full seats. I talked with Gorgeous for five minutes after the match and started being a big mouth and a bragger. He told me people would come to see me to get beat. Others would come to see me win. I get them coming and going. End quote. This would be a story he would repeat during TV interviews, and it all made sense. Ali created a personality that some loved and some loved to hate. He put down his opponents using witticisms and poetry, predicting which round he would knock them out and all the time preaching that he was the greatest. 
He would tell ridiculous tall tales about being so fast that he could hit a switch and be in bed before the light went out. One of his famous rhymes ended with the line, I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. So often did he describe himself as the greatest, that it was impossible to ignore his influence, pulling in many viewers who would not usually watch boxing. Of course, he backed this up with some of the most creative and intelligent fight science in the history of boxing, not to mention tremendous heart both inside and outside the ring. He fought in an era of greats, and all those he fought became part of the show. Even in the saddest days of his career, as it neared its end, he commanded a tremendous aura about his personality. Two decades after he hung up his gloves, he was voted Sports Personality of the Year. When the dust settled, it was apparent that very few of his old rivals bore grudges against him, and he was very quick to embrace them. Ali teased, verbally sparred, debated and outright insulted people on a regular basis, but few held it against him any more than they did Groucho Marx. His statements about his looks were clearly influenced by gorgeous George's acting. There was always that mischievous charm about him that came over in his interviews with people like the UK's Michael Parkinson. However, Smoking Joe Frazier was far less forgiving, and it's through their rival that we might get a little insight into the larger picture I'm trying to present. Frazier's dislike for Ali ran deep. The two were apparently friends prior to the build-up of their first match. Frazier was a hero of his hometown of Philadelphia, loved and respected by many until he agreed to fight Muhammad Ali. It was declared the fight of the century due to the fact that both men had legitimate claims on the world championship belt. Ali had been the lineal champion before he was stripped of the title for refusing to be drafted in 1967, and Frazier had won two versions of the world championship during Ali's suspension from boxing. Frazier might have refused to call Ali by his new name, but other than that he'd stayed out of political matters. This had led the Conservatives to claim him as their champion, whether he agreed with them or not. Ali, of course, being both the activist and the self-publicist, naturally embraced the fashionable left-leaning anti-establishment side. After a terrific and genuinely historic contest, Frazier won by a points decision, and even succeeded in knocking Ali down. However, the pre- and post-hype Ali publicity had done its damage. Like the fictional world champion Apollo Creed in Rocky II, Frazier's children suffered at school because of his involvement in boxing. Frazier's children were bullied because their father was being painted as an enemy of his own people by Ali. He called Frazier an Uncle Tom. This was an insult Ali had also thrown at Ernie Terrell during the notorious What's My Name bout, where Ali kept asking Terrell this question after the fighter of public refused to call him anything other than Cassius Clay. If you're unfamiliar with the term Uncle Tom, it's derived from the 1852 novel Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, and it's an epithet often used to describe a subservient black person who either contributes to the oppression against his race or applies a neutral passive stance. Like modern-day pro wrestlers and MMA's Conor McGregor, Ali did not really respect any boundaries in his publicity, and sometimes it was hard to see where the line was drawn between his show business persona and his heartfelt principles. Ali blended over-the-top arrogant showboating with genuine activism. Terrell had apparently confused the two when he accused Ali of using the religious name change as a publicity gimmick. Joe Frazier had worked hard from nothing to rise to his position in the boxing world. He'd suffered oppression at least as much as Ali, growing up on the tough streets of Philadelphia. The bravery he showed in the ring throughout his career and his unique style had earned him a place in fight history and is now considered one of the greatest boxers of all time. He might have stoked Ali's fire early on in the rivalry and certainly contributed to the feud, but even Ali later agreed he did not deserve the scorn he and his family received or the role he was cast in the eyes of the media. It would appear going by the writings of Davis Miller and Mark Cram, that Frazier never forgave his old rival. Years later, all the fighters would blame the media and the promoters for winding each other up, 
and for taking advantage of racial tensions. Some of the later interviews Fraser and Ali publicly gave together for the promotion of Forever Champions with George Foreman and Ken Norton appear to paint a happier end to the story. Ali's sense of humour and teasing was still present in 1989, even as he was visibly suffering from the effects of the Parkinson syndrome, some directly connect to his final clash with Frazier. He came across as humble as his rivals credited him for being the greatest. Ali confessed that he never thought he really was the greatest, and it was all just part of the promotional game he had created. Frazier said he would do it all again. Many are won over by Ali's apparent remorse for the hurt he caused Frazier. That much appears to be genuine. Ali might have been a rebel at times, and even strongly polarised opinion for a short period of time, but quickly he became part of the promotional game. Frazier ended up adopting the role of a victim, just as many consider Habib to be, who either didn't understand the rules or simply just didn't want to play the game. Ali wouldn't be the first African-American boxing champion to level the Uncle Tom insult at another. Jack Johnson was a natural hero of Muhammad Ali, and he was prepared to use the taunt against those he viewed as appeasers. By the time Johnson finally lost the title in 1915, his flamboyant behaviour inside and outside the ring, including his then shocking marriage to a young white woman, would lead to his eventual imprisonment, and it would be decades before there would be another black heavyweight champion. That champion would be a man that many consider to be possibly the all-time greatest heavyweight, Joe Lewis. It would be Lewis that Johnson would accuse of being a subservient appeaser of white oppression. The insult was thrown after Lewis had refused to allow Johnson in his boxing camp. Lewis said that Johnson's actions had turned matters back for African Americans. Lewis, by contrast, was a natural face for 1930s and 40s sensibilities. His management were careful to ensure he would never be associated with Johnson. He was promoted as modest and clean living. His defeat of the Italian primo Carnera and his rivalry with the German Max Schmeling allowed his promoters and the media to present Lewis as a symbol of the American ideal. Carnera had been presented as a representative of Mussolini's fascist Italy, and Schmeling was touted as a fighter for Hitler's Nazi party. Schmeling was not a Nazi. He was just another boxer who was swept up in the promotional machine being used for political ends. Schmeling handed Lewis his first professional defeat and became a national hero of Germany. Lewis's second bout against Schmeling resulted in a victory, giving the American people a huge boost at a time when patriotic propaganda was at an all-time high. In contrast to Ali, Lewis would be drafted and raise funds for the military through exhibition bouts. Although often presented with racist nicknames in the media, Lewis's support of the military defeated Schmeling undeniable talent in the ring and carefully managed, well-mannered public image allowed him to win over white America. In an ironic twist, Max Schmeling would befriend Lewis in later years and come to his aid when it might be argued that America, in the form of the IRS, had turned on him. Now a hugely successful businessman, Schmeling would help his old rival when Lewis faced financial problems generated by back taxes he apparently owed for the exhibition bouts he fought during his military service. Both Johnson and Lewis were caught up in the promotional machine that eventually processed them in cold ways after they ceased to be useful. It is their stories that makes one feel more sympathetic towards boxers who carefully manage their financial affairs and ignore the taunts of those who expect them to fight for the love of the sport. The professional combat sport world was born out of violent chaos. It might even be argued that it was born out of warring tribes and the legacy remains to this day. Team sports like football in its many forms come from an all-in organised battle between two villages competing over a ball. We shouldn't be surprised that even with all the various rules and regulations that are strictly enforced today, that the legacy of those days lives on in loyal groups of fans that align themselves with certain clubs or the organised hooligan firms that hunger for a return to savagery. Likewise, ice hockey has developed such a fearsome reputation for violence in its matches that there's a persistent joke, I went in to watch a fight, 
and an ice hockey game broke out. Boxing has a history of working hard to gain respectability. The 17th and 18th century saw the upper and middle classes titillated by the culture of the fight game. The gentry embraced the flash language, the criminal fraternity used as a form of code around matches. Aristocrats patronised fighters like Jim Figg and Jack Broughton to encourage their stables to produce good quality pugilists, and within their own circles the unarmed combat duel replaced pistols and swords. Literary figures from Lord Byron of the Regency era, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of the far more reserved Victorian era, learnt to box. The 20th century had its Ernest Hemingway and the Muhammad Ali-obsessed Norman Mailer. The boxing batches of the bare-knuckle era remained righteous affairs throughout their heyday to their decline, and really until the Marquess of Queensbury rules were properly instated as the official rules of the sport, heralding the gloved era. Prior to this era, it was not uncommon for fights to be broken up by the police, or for the events to descend into chaos. That would have been all part of the excitement for the sport's various supporters who enjoyed being exposed to a flavour of their species' brutal roots before being returned to the safety and comfort of their regular life in refined civilization. That refined civilization would become a fashion of prudery and Victorian values, and it was inevitable that boxing would have to adapt to the changing times. The Queensbury rules were a success, and the image of the gentlemanly art of self-defence prevailed. We see similar things occurring in the Asian martial arts world, with the adoption of Budo values in Japan around the same time. However, the threat of chaos was never far from the surface. The media of the 18th and 19th century were just as much a part of the professional fight game as they are to this day. Our knowledge of the various bouts have been immortalised by the enthusiastic journalists of those bygone years, but they were also part of the promotion. There was no better way to gain that bit of extra interest in a fight than to start a feud in the press. After all, deep in our collective consciousness, this is what makes the matter seem real. Now we're no longer watching a game, we're watching a dangerous fight. From the judicial law of trial by combat to duelling, humans have long used their single combat tradition to decide supposed arguments of truth. The continuing custom of settling disputes in a bare-knuckle fight in traveller communities remains the most honest representation of the reasoning behind having a boxing fight. Fight promoters and fighters alike know how important this is to get the audience behind an event. They know that emotional investment in these fighters is as important for them as it is for an actor or a politician. This is why local combat sports events often rely on local fighters to sell tickets. Betting on an individual used to be the lifeblood of the fight game, and it still has a huge influence. Muay Thai in Thailand, for example, has had its traditional combat sport shaped by gambling interests. However, this is not the secret to recruiting the lay audience. Interest in fighters can be gained by their style of fighting or from the patriotic support. But, above all else, there is the magic of creating a character. Create a character that touches enough buttons in the public consciousness, and people will want to see his fight, from the hardcore fight fans and gamblers to supporters and opponents of his cause. Get the people who don't usually watch combat sports interested, and monetary stakeholders win. In order to create such wide interest, you have to somehow stir in people the natural instinct towards fighting. But then we're shocked when matters get out of hand. Let's not kid ourselves. The UFC facilitated the environment that led to what occurred at UFC 229. Many commentators talk about McGregor overstepping a line in his verbal assaults on Habib as if this is an unheard of or rare in the fight world. Boxing is full of these examples. Mike Tyson virtually threatened to rape a reporter during his press conference brawl with Lennox Lewis. He bit Lewis, an action that had got him suspended during his last heavyweight championship contest, but the fight still went ahead. Habib had his family insulted, so did Sugar Ray Robinson in the build-up to his first fight with Roberto Duran. 
This was all part of Durant's psychological warfare to get Robinson to play his game in the green, and it worked. Many martial artists call back to bygone days of chivalry and Bushido as examples of true honour and respect. The trouble is, those days did not really exist. Both were heavily romanticised and retold to align with the moral ideals of the 19th century, Britain and Japan, respectively. The codes of old had more to do with ensuring nobles could be ransomed, or warriors were not killed by people beneath their social status, and to make knights or samurai loyal to their lords than anything else. There's little in there that reflects the values of modern superheroes. Little in there about defending the weak, unless the weak happens to be religious pilgrims or people from noble blood, and there's nothing in there really about defending the poor. Musashi Miyamoto is praised as the great philosophical exemplification of the samurai ideal, and is probably its most famous historic figure. However, his great strategies involved breaking the rules of what many of us would consider to be a fair fight. He ambushed those who expected to be fighting in a traditional duel. Two realistic solutions can come from within the martial arts community to ensure there is more transparency in the world of professional combat sports. Choice one involves a complete overhaul of conduct, and choice two involves a level of acceptance. The first choice is for everyone to coordinate in putting some firm contractual rules of conduct. I mean, this comes from the sports athletic associations, the promoters, the managers, everybody involved with the fight game. If fighters know that their actions will get them banned from a sport for life, and this is non-negotiable, then these actions cease to be an effective promotional tool. No one is going to agree on an outright ban on having any pre-fight banter, and psychological warfare exists throughout all competitive endeavours, be they actual wars or an amateur games night. Nevertheless, if you want to stop everything from getting out of hand, there will have to be some robust rules that ensure fighters retain a certain standard of behaviour and decorum. Trash talking needs to be guarded, be it on social media, or at press conferences. Perhaps certain subjects do need to be off limits when it comes to discussing the fight. Weigh-ins will need to have stronger rules enforced and face-offs will need to be better controlled and maybe even stopped. Any violent or intimidatory criminal actions towards anyone during the time a fighter is contracted must be met with an automatic disqualification from a promotion. For this to really hold up, the standards must be enforced by the main professional boxing authorities as they have always set the example. The second choice is to let matters continue as they are, but ensure that everyone goes in with their eyes wide open. Habib has done a great job of presenting himself as a man who stands by his principles. This extends to him willing to leave the UFC if Dana White follows through with banning his cornermen from being in the UFC. If appearances are to be believed, he is transparent in his convictions and appears not to be wishing to play the promotional game to the extent that McGregor's team think is acceptable. Fighters need to accept that once they get into a fight, then it's pretty much a free-for-all, and from now on, they're part of an ongoing publicity stunt. If we're going to go along with this route, then spectators need to be protected and also informed that this is an immersive spectacle. Either of these options are better than having this weird disconnect where people are surprised that fighting occurs at a fighting event, or where we get moral bombasting over two people who are paid to play a game. I recall writing up two interviews with David Hay and Tony Bellew in their build-up to their fight and the reactions were that audiences were now tired of this pantomime rivalry. No one was buying into the feuds that were more convincingly being portrayed in movies in the pro wrestling world. They're just not believable now. If McGregor's supporters are to be believed, he should be seen as just the latest cocky heel in the tradition that we have just covered. Today's audiences are demanding more from the people who fight, especially from a fledgling sport like mixed martial arts that wishes to rise to the position held by professional boxing. 
It all began in hatred and chaos with Jack Johnson's era. It got turned into an entertaining spectacle through Gorgeous George and promoted to an art form through Muhammad Ali. However, Ali's tenure also served to illustrate a blurring of boundaries. The danger loomed. The likes of middleweight and super middleweight world champions Chris Eubank and Nassim Hamid brought some innocuous fun to playing the arrogant and cocky heel. Although never reaching the popularity of Ali, they were able to divide audiences and entertain them without making matters personal. However, this was never going to last. Tyson, in his declining years, needed to remain relevant to the boxing world. So, he became an extreme version of the days when he inspired terror in the ring. This might be compared to McGregor's career. He's won one out of his four most recent fights, including a hugely successful pay-per-view boxing match where he was carried by Floyd Mayweather Jr., yet still people want him to fight, perhaps recalling his displays of kickboxing during his heyday. Is it a coincidence he's ramped up his pre-fight publicity to such extremes? Around the time McGregor emerged, Ronda Rousey achieved work boxing had failed. Playing the role of an aggressive, obnoxious and disrespectful heel, she put professional female fighters in successful main events. When I consider both possible options in order to secure a more transparent future for professional fighting, I cannot help but see some collective responsibility throughout the world of martial arts. We want mainstream recognition and respect, yet we also know how publicity works. This podcast ended up taking me far longer to create than I first intended. I feel I must apologise for getting totally sidetracked from the show I said I would be running in my previous podcast. I intend to give that subject more justice soon. However, after hearing all the reactions to the fight, I was inspired to say something. It only intended to be a 10-minute bonus episode, but it seems there's a lot more to say about the overall conduct of professional fighting. I'm hoping to get a Halloween special out, mainly because I love this time of year, and it inspires me to write about a few themes. When better to discuss the management of fear, a big part of self-protection education, than at the time of year the Western world traditionally likes to celebrate all things scary. When better to discuss child protection than when we send kids out to beg off strangers. Plus, there are various monsters and spooky characters often used at Halloween to provide interesting metaphors for the real dangers of this world. In the meantime, be sure to keep up to date with everything Club Chimera. Please like and follow my Facebook page, follow my Twitter page and YouTube channel. I have a new set of videos called Clash of the Forearms out now. For those who'd like to read some of my non-martial arts writing, the first book I wrote, The Legend of Salt and Sauce, is being released before the end of this year as a special anniversary edition. Don't forget, like, subscribe to this particular podcast on your favourite platform. Reviews are very, very useful. All feedback is greatly received. Thanks for listening.